want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. But since we've uh, been a few weeks out of it, I'm just going to read for us from verse 6 all the way to 20 just to give us some context. So Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, this is God's five woes against the Babylonian nation. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask, Lord, that we would be silent and that we would give you would give us receptive ears and receptive hearts and receptive minds to your truth this morning. Speak to us, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us. And save those who are not yet saved. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, we ended off um, several weeks ago looking at the first three woes in Habakkuk 2. The first woe we saw that God declares judgment against those who plunder and take what is not their own. Not only that, we saw that he declares judgment on those who build themselves luxurious living and security at the expense of the oppressed. And then thirdly, we saw that he declares judgment on those who build cities with human suffering and blood. And he declares all of that to be futile because it's the glory of the Lord that will fill all the earth, not the glory of Babylon, nor the glory of any nation or any man. But there are two other woes in this narrative. Two other things that God promises to judge Babylon for, and really any people or nation that lives like this. Remember, everything that is described here in chapter 2 is a result of the person whose soul is puffed up in verse 4 of chapter 2. That is, the person who is arrogant and in rebellion against God. This defined Babylon. And it defines, really, all of humanity apart from the mercy and grace found in Jesus. Babylon becomes this picture, this metaphor, to describe the ways of this fallen world. And so this morning, we're simply going to look at the final two woes, the fourth woe and the fifth woe, that God declares against Babylon, and ultimately, 
against any who oppose God and his ways. Now, there's two things to remember. Remember that this is God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint to the problem of evil. That is, Habakkuk feels as though Babylon is going to get away with the evil that they've done. And here in chapter 2, God answers that complaint with a resounding, absolutely not. Babylon and all who behave like Babylon will be held to account for their immorality. Secondly, the, the second thing I want you to remember is this. When it comes to the woe oracles, we saw that there will often be a, a declaration of the evil committed and then a declaration of God's judgment against such evil. And there's a similar pattern, pattern here in the last two oracle, oracles, though there's a little difference. So now we come to the fourth woe in verses 15 to 17. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. It's horrifying imagery, yet often far too well known in our world. Now, some have argued that this is simply a, a metaphor to describe Babylon's violence and conquering of the other nations. And there's probably some truth to this, but I I do think it's also describing what the culture of Babylon was like. It was a power-driven, hedonistic culture that engaged in perverse and depraved practices like drunkenness and sexual exploitation. And the reason I think this is because of the rest of the testimony of Scripture, not just this passage. Babylon's used through the scriptures to describe the hedonistic tendencies of human nature and the perverse practices that human beings participate in. For example, in Revelation 17, 1-6, there's this vision that John has of the fall of Babylon. And listen to these words. Then one of the seven angels who had, had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. There you have the same theme, both drunkenness and sexual immorality together. And here he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Who's the woman? Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. It's a horrifying picture. It's imagery, but it's conveying theological truth. You see, we know from history, and even today, that when a nation often conquers another nation, they don't just kill. They pillage and rape. And often the greatest victims are women and children. They will horrifically use their force and power to utterly humiliate and degrade those they've conquered. And one of the ways in which they do this is through drunkenness and sexual immorality. And I think that's what's partly being described here in Habakkuk 2. Babylon would intoxicate those they conquered, as the text says, in order to gaze upon their nakedness. It was, as one commentator puts it, Babylon policy to get people drunk and to manipulate them into such compromising and degrading situations. Drunkenness allows people to do the most shameful things, only to wake up the next day completely unaware of the depravity that was committed the night before. See, this is a culture handed over to its base instincts. 
This is a culture consumed and enslaved to power, but also base hedonistic desires. This was a defining marker of Babylonian culture. And God says, woe to him who does such things. Woe to him who engages in such immoral and depraved practices, drunkenness that leads to all forms of sexual perversions. See, friends, what's described here, if we're honest, is becoming more and more a norm in our culture today. All one has to do is look to the university campuses and the incredible rise in claims regarding sexual assault. It's not abnormal for parties to begin with drinking in order for it to lead to all kinds of sexual acts and perversions. What's described here in verse 15, though it's in the context of conquering other people, the fact is it's describing the way in which the Babylonians approached sexuality in general. The Babylonians were all about sexual liberation. And so are we as a culture. The consumption of pornography and the violence within pornography today. Premarital sex is completely acceptable today to the point that if, if you save yourself for marriage, you are seen as a Neanderthal. Hookup culture, a rejection of monogamous relationships, an all-encompassing embrace of all forms of sexual expression. I literally just read an article by this philosopher who is married to her husband, but has three lovers on the side. And she makes her case for why this should be normal and morally acceptable. You see, some people in North America might have lived that way over a hundred years ago, before the sexual revolution, but it was never viewed as morally acceptable. Today, it's not just being practiced, it's being viewed as morally acceptable. This defines our culture. It's a culture given over to sexual impulses, which was precisely what Babylon was like. Just last year, the Washington Post put out an article written by an author who's a mother, and this was the title of the article. Yes, kink belongs at pride, and I want my kids to see it. And then she goes on to explain why she thinks it's important for her children to see kink. Now, I'm not going to define kink this morning. If you know, you know. But here's her reasoning. She wants her children to understand that everyone has different desires when it comes to sexual expression, and everyone needs to be embraced and accepted for who they are. In other words, how you express yourself sexually is where your identity resides. For those who participate in kink, they are simply being their authentic selves. And I want my kids to know that. Now here's why I bring this article up. Because this is an article written in mainstream media. The Washington Post. This is not some random person who has a blog somewhere on the internet. This is being promoted by a major news outlet. This is becoming the acceptable norm of our culture, and specifically the elites of our culture. I mean, all you have to do is look at what's happening to children from the transgender ideology that's being pushed in our culture and the so-called medical treatment for these children. Hear me on this. You can quote me. It is mutilation and abuse of children. And all of this has horrifying, destructive consequences for our culture. Christine Emba, she's not remotely a Christian, she recently wrote an article for the New York Times titled, Straight People Need Better Rules for Sex. And in this article, through her research, she has concluded that despite all the sexual freedom and liberty that we now have, that was supposed to bring us more happiness. Okay, that was the narrative of the sexual revolution. Sexual liberation will bring more happiness. It, is, it has, in fact, through her research, done the opposite. It's brought a distrust between the sexes, hurt, pain, a decrease, actually, in sexual activity. More and more young people, especially women, don't want to have sexual encounters because of the emptiness and pain they feel. 
She says this, One could say that we're living in a golden age of sexual freedom. The average age of first marriage, I love how she calls it first marriage, as if there's no okay for second marriage, but the average age of first marriage is rising. It's more acceptable than ever to remain single or pursue a wide variety of relationship styles. A majority of the public finds premarital sex acceptable. Birth control for women is widely available and with health insurance often free. Sex positivity is celebrated in progressive circles with sexual adventurousness championed and inhibition often looked down on. We have breached the ramparts of repression. And the wall of silence that prevented us from expressing our sexuality has, for the most part, fallen. Getting rid of the old rules. What were those old rules? Well, the morality found in the Bible. Getting rid of the old rules and replacing them with the norm of consent was supposed to make us happy. Instead, many people today feel a bit lost. Getting rid of the old rules and replacing them with the norm of consent. That is the only thing that matters when it comes to sexuality is consent. That was supposed to make us happy. But instead, many people today feel a bit lost. And then she goes on to make the case that consent cannot be the only moral principle that guides our sex lives. Now she doesn't understand why, but here's the reason why. Because sex acts have a moral intrinsic value to the act itself. It's not just consent that defines something to be morally acceptable. She goes on to say, It's time to raise the standard for what good sexual encounters look like and hold ourselves and our peers accountable to it. Good, that is to say, ethical. Isn't that interesting? Sex is not simply about getting consent so that we can do what we want. The ideal we might strive for instead is to will the good of our partners. That sounds Christian. And hold ourselves back from having sex if we cannot or are unsure that our partners do. This might lead to less casual sex, she says, at least in the short term. But considering the clear dissatisfaction with the current landscape, that might not be so bad. She's arguing that we need an ethic that seeks the good of the other. Christianity has something to say about that. And then she concludes with this. In every other situation common to, human, common to the human experience, eating, drinking, exercise, even email, we have come to realize that limits produce, produce healthier results. It's unlikely that sex and relationships are exceptions to the rule. An unrestrained sexual culture hasn't necessarily led to better sex for all or to better relationships. In many cases, it has inspired numbness, callousness, hurting others and being hurt. And rather than being titillating, sexual overload has become boring. Rules can make things more exciting, more beautiful, more open to the possibility of something better, even if we aren't there yet. This is not a Christian woman, but she's acknowledging that that what has come out of the sexual revolution has not produced what it promised. It has not produced healthy men and women who are full of joy in life. It's produced misery. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because here's what we need to see. We're no longer living under Christendom, however you want to define that. We're living in Babylon, and the values of Babylon are being played out in our culture. Drunkenness and sexual perversions, sexual abuse, and God declares judgment upon Babylon and any nation that's given over to these kinds of things. Woe to him who does these things. See, I don't think we understand the full implications of a culture given over to such licentiousness and immorality. God's laws aren't arbitrary. God's laws are meant to serve human 
flourishing, which means when a culture disregards God's moral law, that culture has placed itself on a train that leads to destruction. It might may not happen overnight. It will be slow, but it will come. A culture that's morally corrupt will destroy itself from within. And I think we're seeing that today. So God pronounces his woe against Babylon for their causing drunkenness in order to gaze upon the nakedness of their victims. That's the evil that's been declared. And then in verse 16, God declares the judgment that will come upon them because of their behavior. Look at verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now this isn't the first time that God has spoken of shame in these woes. In the second woe, God declares that the king of Babylon has devised shame for himself in building his own palace through the oppression of those he conquered. And now God declares that because you're participating in depravities like drunkenness and all the sexual morality that is often tied to drunkenness, shame will come upon you instead of glory. Babylon lived for its own glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And now God says that glory will be taken away and shame will cover you. There's also this reference to God telling them to drink and to show their uncircumcision. The idea, of course, is just as you have forced others to drink in order to gaze on their nakedness, so now you will be forced to drink and your uncircumcision will be exposed. And then there's this reference to the cup in the Lord's right hand, which will come around to you. And this cup in the scriptures is a direct reference to God's judgment. Psalm 75, 8 clearly displays this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, God won't allow Babylon to get away with its immorality. They will drink the cup of God's judgment because they have forced others to drink their cup so that they could gaze upon their nakedness. They shamed others, and now shame will come upon them. This is not a pretty picture. It's a horrifying picture. Now there's another element to this fourth woe that is addressed in verse 17. God not only condemns Babylon for its drunkenness and sexual immorality and its violence against other nations, he also condemns Babylon for its violence against his creation itself. Look at verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now that last line in verse 17 is actually repeated um, or is, is uh, stated first in verse 8, which really gives a, a good summary of Babylon's conduct, right? Blood, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. But notice that God speaks of violence done to Lebanon as well as the destruction of beasts. What's going on here? Well, Lebanon, which was allotted to the people of Israel by the Lord in his original mandate through Moses, was known for its magnificent cedars. These forests in Lebanon were completely wiped out by the Babylonians. And on top of that, they slaughtered large wild animals. And they did this, as one commentator puts it, all in the name of conquest and empire building. They treated the creation as though it belonged to them and not to God. It's interesting, in Psalm 104, the cedars of Lebanon are described as the Lord's. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, and the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And the Babylonians went through and destroyed the trees and the animals all for the purpose of building a name for themselves and to live 
in luxury. And God says, because you have done this, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast. What you did to my creation will be done to you. As Pryor so powerfully states, the verdict is clear. The ruthless exploitation of nature will incur retribution. The earth is God's creation and the cedars of Lebanon were planted by him, but they have been plundered by the conqueror for his military equipment and for his building projects. The birds that nested in their branches have been evicted from their homes and the animals that had their habitat there have been slaughtered. Wholesale. wholesale. This is my Father's world. Isaiah 14 prophesies the fall of Babylon. In, and in Isaiah 14, we see the remnant of Israel rejoicing in the fall of Babylon. But in verse 7 to 8, there's a reference to the trees. Listen to this. The whole earth, this is in light of the fact that Bob, Babylon has fallen. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low. Who was laid low? Babylon was laid low. The cedars of Lebanon are saying, since you were laid low, Babylon, no woodcutter comes up against us. Cedars are speaking and rejoicing for Babylon can no longer harm them. Maybe Tolkien was onto something when he wrote of talking trees in the Lord of the Rings. See, here's the point. God cares about how we treat his creation and the reasons behind what we do with the creation. See, Babylon wiped out the cedars and the animals for the reason of empire building, and God will not tolerate such a thing. God cares about his creation, and he cares about how we treat the creation. And, and, and to say that, it doesn't make you a radical, progressive, climate change, apocalyptic, apocalyptic activist. It just makes you a Christian. I mean, think about this. God gave Israel commands in regards to how they treated their animals, but also how they treated the land. He commanded that after six years of working the land, he required that for them to allow the land to rest for a whole year. Exodus 23, 10 to 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. What does that mean? It means to, to allow it to restore fertility. That the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. God cares about the beasts of the field. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. God gives them a command, work the land for six years, but on the seventh year, allow it to rest. Allow it to revive. In Leviticus 26, God speaks of both the blessings for covenant obedience and the cursings for covenant disobedience. And one of the things God tells Israel is that when they go into captivity, that is the Babylonian captivity, for their iniquity, he tells them the land will finally rest because you disregarded my laws concerning the land. Listen to this. But then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. Israel didn't give the land rest. And so God, one of the reasons why God sends them into captivity is because they neglected that command. And God chose to give the land rest. You see, our Western values teach us that we own the land. But we don't own the land. We are stewards of the land. God gave us as his image bearers dominion over the land. And God's not against us using the land to live and flourish. But we're stewards of the land. We ought to care for the creation that God has entrusted to us. 
You see, I don't think the progressive climate activist mentality today is remotely Christian for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is, is because in the narrative, we are the God over creation and we are the ones who can save the creation. No. But I also think the other extreme is not Christian either. That is a complete indifference to the creation. I mean, who cares if we wipe out that forest or if that animal goes extinct? We got a theme park. See, when professing Christians say things like, well, it's all going to burn anyway. That's not a Christian attitude towards creation. That's Babylonian. The fact is, this creation is going to follow the same pattern that our bodies will follow. That is the pattern of death and resurrection. Romans 8 makes clear that this creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay, just as our bodies will be liberated from bondage to to decay through the resurrection. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers to this issue, but I do think as Christians... We ought to be more concerned about the ways in which the creation is treated, especially when it's motivated by human greed and power. This is the fourth woe. God will judge Babylon for its abuse of the creation and its shaming of others through drunkenness and sexual immorality. And now we come to the final woe, the fifth woe, which is all about idolatry. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. We see that this woe is against idolatry. And there are several things we see here about idolatry. For one, we see very clearly there is no benefit from idolatry. Right? You see that in the rhetorical question of verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? The point is, there is no profit to an idol. If you have to build the thing, it can't serve you. Secondly, there's a theme here about idolatry that is captured throughout the scriptures. On the one hand, idols are empty. They're useless and they're lifeless. As he says, there's no breath at all in it. It can't teach. Yet on the other hand, idols are extremely powerful over the mind and souls of humanity. Though they are speechless, they are, as he describes, teacher of lies. Teacher of lies. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 states that idols are nothing in and of themselves, and that when people offer sacrifices to these idols, they are in fact offering them to demons. To demons. In other words, idols are nothing, but they are used by the demonic powers to deceive. As Goldsmith states, they are the tools of Satan, the father of lies, and are therefore spiritually highly charged and very dangerous. So on the one hand, they're, they're useless and have no life in them, but on the other hand, they're extremely dangerous because of the lies that flow from these idols. Thirdly, what we see in this passage about idolatry is that that at the heart of idolatry is a trust in one's own creation. Look at verse 18. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. See, at the heart of idolatry is trust in oneself and not God. And this goes right back to chapter 2, verse 4. The difference between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked is the one whose soul is puffed up. They have no regard for God. They trust in themselves. But the righteous are those who live by faith in God. You see, the Babylonians ultimately trusted in themselves. That's why in Habakkuk 1.11, God describes the Babylonians with these words. 
guilty men whose own might is their God. Guilty men whose own might is their God. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that the final woe addresses the idolatry of Babylon for a few reasons. For one, the greatest evil described here in chapter 2 is not Babylon's violence, but their idolatry. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Which would mean, if that's the greatest commandment, then the greatest evil is to not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You see, the woes end in the climactic declaration that Babylon will be judged fundamentally for its idolatry because idolatry was their greatest evil. Secondly, the reason I think this is addressed last is because it's the foundation for everything else. In other words, the reason Babylon behaves the way it does is because of what they believe and worship. The Old Testament and the New Testament clearly teach that what we worship and believe impacts how we live, our lifestyles. Robertson says this about the Babylonians. Because their religious orientation was wrong, their moral standards had to be perverted. As the creators of gods who could not speak, they had to make up their own standards for a way of life. For example, if you believe, if you believe that the most important thing in life is wealth, right? That that's what you're living for. You want to get as much money as you can. If you believe that is the most important thing, then it would be foolish and even immoral to give your wealth away. But if you believe that God is the most important thing and that he alone should be what we treasure and value, then money is simply a means to survive and a means to bless others with. You see, Babylon acted the way they acted because of their idolatrous beliefs. Now I know that we're too enlightened in our secular culture to fall prey to idols, bowing down to objects. I mean, that's what primitive people do. But the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. And if there's a sin that defines our culture better than any other, it's the sin of covetousness. Craving and wanting that which we don't have. We're a discontented people always craving for the next best thing. Always hoping that there's something better around the corner whether it's material objects, career ambitions, whether it's a prettier spouse. We are an idolatrous people. See, at the heart of idolatry, the essence of idolatry is living for something other than God, loving something more than God. This is the last woe. But if you think about the sins that God confronts Babylon over here in these last two woes, these sins define our culture very well. Drunkenness and sexual degradation, carelessness towards God's creation, idolatry, living for anything and everything that isn't God. And God says, woe to us who live like this. Judgment comes upon all who live like this. But chapter 2 doesn't end with a woe. It ends with an exhortation in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Here in verse 20, God is being contrasted to that of the idols who do not speak nor teach, who have no breath in them. The holy temple here can be in reference to the physical temple itself, but it ultimately refers to God's heavenly sanctuary. See, unlike these idols that have been made by human hands, the Almighty dwells in a heavenly sanctuary that no man has ever seen. And we're being told that all the earth should keep silence 
before him. Why? Well, two things come to mind. Unlike the idols who do not speak, God does speak, and therefore we ought to be silent to hear his voice. I mean, think about what it is we are doing here this morning. Apart from the preacher, the longest part of our worship service is one of silence. Every Sunday we gather to worship God, and the major part of our worship is for us to be silent and to listen to God's word being expanded. At the heart of our worship is not us speaking to God, but rather God speaking to us. Also, silence here is a picture of submission and reverence. Habakkuk has made his complaints known. God has answered. He has made it clear to Habakkuk what he's going to do. And now it's time to keep silent before Almighty God and realize that he is the true and living God and his ways are not our ways. As Calvin says, there is another kind of silence and that is when we willingly submit to God. For silence in this respect is nothing else but submission. And we submit to God when we bring not our own inventions and imaginations, but suffer ourselves to be taught by his word. We also submit to him when we murmur not against his power or his judgments, when we humble ourselves under his powerful hand and do not fiercely resist him. See, this exhortation in verse 20 is God summoning us to decide. Who will we worship? The idols of Babylon or the one true and everlasting God? Will we follow the ways of Babylon or follow the ways of God? We either worship and live for created things or worship and live for the Creator. Now to end off this morning, I want to speak to two different groups. First, I want to speak to those of us who are followers of Jesus, those who have already been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Though we have been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God calls us not to walk in the ways of Babylon. God calls us not to love the things of this world, the things of Babylon. But while we are citizens in the kingdom of Christ, we're still journeying through Babylon. And sometimes Babylon can rub off on us. And I think this is especially true living in North America. And I would encourage you as a Christian to examine your life to see that you are walking in the truth. Maybe a little bit of the sexual immorality of Babylon has gotten a grip of your heart. And you need to repent of it, forsake it, and turn to the mercy of Jesus. Maybe the idols of Babylon have gripped your heart. Money, security, success, reputation, career, beauty, entertainment. Maybe you need to turn from these things and come before the throne of God and be silent before your maker and allow him to speak to your soul and to restore your soul. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may be thinking, is there any hope? Is there any hope? I mean, if what's described here describes all of human beings, then that means that judgment is coming. And you'd be right. And you might think, where's the hope? Is there any way to not be destroyed with Babylon? The answer is yes. The clue lies in verse 16, where we're told the cup of God's wrath will come around to you. Do you know that this cup is referenced again when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays to God Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. He was praying 
that God would take the cup of his wrath from him, but he surrenders to the will of his Father. That cup that Jesus speaks of is the same cup that's referenced here. Listen to what Pryor says. Three times Jesus prayed to his Father, remove this cup from me, the cup which contained the sins of the whole world and God's holy judgment on them. Jesus knew that the only way, the only way to bring salvation to a corrupt and violent world was for him to drain that cup to the dregs. He drank it. He drained it. His blood shed for the world atones for all the blood shed in the world by the world. Now he holds out the cup containing his own blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to this. That cup is the only alternative to the cup of God's judgment. He invites us to drink from the cup of salvation so that we do not have to drink from the other cup. There are two cups You will drink one of them. The only alternative to the cup of judgment is the cup of salvation, the cup of Christ's blood. There is hope. There is a Savior. He drank the cup of God's judgment and He offers you the cup of His salvation. But you must take the cup and believe the cup that Jesus offers is sufficient to save you from your sins to save you from Babylon, and to save you from the judgment to come. Take the cup and drink. Take Jesus and believe. Let's pray. Father, I realize that this is a very heavy passage. And this passage this morning might even bring up painful memories for people here. And I pray that you would heal their broken heart. And I pray, Lord, that every single person in this room would choose to drink the cup of salvation rather than to drink the cup of judgment. You in your mercy have offered this cup. And I pray that not a single person in this room would leave here today without being right with Jesus Christ without being right with their maker. Have mercy on them and save them. And Lord, for those of us who know Jesus, who have already experienced the cup of salvation, I pray, God, that you would help us to live in this world but not be of this world. To live according to the values and virtues of your kingdom and not the values and virtues of Babylon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning together. And, um, and this morning we're, we're going to come and eat the bread and drink the cup in silence. We're going to be silent this morning as we drink the cup and eat the bread because the passage tells us to be silent before God. Here at this table, we come as the blood-bought people of God to drink from the cup of salvation. Jesus, as I said, consumed the cup of judgment, and now we, as his bride, consume the cup of redemption. In this cup, there is found the forgiveness of sins. There is found justification, adoption, glorification. In this cup, we find everlasting life. And when we come as followers of Jesus to drink this cup, we're declaring to one another that we no longer belong to Babylon. But we belong to the kingdom of Jesus and we belong to one another. And though Babylon might rub off off on us, we come to this table to eat the bread and to drink the cup to renew our devotion and our commitment to Jesus. And through this event, Christ, by the Spirit of God, reaffirms to us that we belong to Him and He's forever committed to us. We believe as Christians that as we partake of the bread and cup together that Christ 
is also present with us. By faith we meet with him and partake of his life together. This is no trivial thing that we are doing here. This is not merely some ritual. There is major warning in the scriptures about coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And so I invite you to quietly before the Lord, pray to him and ask him to prepare your heart to partake of the, of the body and blood of Christ. Ask him to fill your heart with joy and thanksgiving for all that Christ has done for you. Take this time now. O great high priest, teach us, whom you have called to share in your priesthood, to approach this great mystery with reverence, awe, and devotion. Through your grace, may we always believe and understand, know, and firmly hold, speak, and think of this great mystery, that which shall be pleasing to you and helpful to our souls. May your good spirit fill our hearts, and there without sound or the clamor of words speak all truth. For your mysteries are deep and covered with a sacred veil. In your mercy, grant us clean hearts and pure minds with which to celebrate the Eucharist. Free us from all tainted and unholy, vain and hurtful thoughts. Safeguard us with the protection of your holy angels and by the power of this sacred mystery, free us from the spirit of pride and pretension, envy and resentment, selfishness and intemperance, skepticism and mistrust. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. amen.